Hey there, and thanks for tuning in. I've added this note to the beginning of my most recent and highest downloaded episodes to let you know of a few changes and hopefully avoid any confusion for you as listeners. You will hear me call the show Life After Business as well as reference various ventures I've been a part of over the years. When I started the show, I originally named it Life After Business because I was on a mission to learn everything I wish I would have known before we sold our family business back in 2014. And after 200 episodes and Tons of information that I've learned. I finally decided to change the name to better reflect me, the content, and the guests. One of the biggest lessons I've learned is business owners and entrepreneurs who were the happiest and most successful, in my mind, didn't focus only on sucking all the cash out of the company, and they knew the business was going to eventually continue on without them at some point in time. They literally knew exactly what they wanted from their business long term and why. They intentionally focused on building a valuable company so they could have the freedom of choices to do what they wanted from the business. So they focused on strategies that would grow value long term and give them the freedom to choose. You can learn more about the name change, my major lessons, and our definition of intentional growth in episode 200. Enjoy the episode that you're listening to right now, and thanks for being a listener. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand how to increase the value of your business, what your company is worth, and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business and take pride in a valuable company that gives you freedom and choices to exit on your terms. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. This is episode 198 and today's guest was extremely intentional over the years and decades that he grew his company. Lloyd Wolf is on the show today to share with us how he shifted his mindset from profit to value creation and from freelancing to selling to a private equity firm. And as we enter in on a new normal and people are pivoting their business models and looking at their business differently, Lloyd's interview and story is more relevant than ever because over the decades of growing his firm, he shifted business models and he went through different recessions and he still got what he wanted from his company because of how much work he put into it. But before we kick into the interview, I've got an announcement. I am officially changing the name of this podcast from the Life After Business podcast to the Intentional Growth podcast. Huge, huge decision for me after 200 episodes. We're going to be launching it on the 200th episode. So we got a couple more episodes of the Life After Business podcast. But it's a huge decision because over the last four years, I've grown as an individual, as I've learned about valuations, value growth, more about business, the economy. I've just tons of personal growth. And my original and still desire for you, the listener, is to get all the information that you need to make your own decisions so that way you can choose your own adventure. And that is choosing your own adventure and getting what you want out of business, out of life. And it really comes down to being intentional. And in order to be intentional, you need to have knowledge. You need to understand how valuations work, how the economy works, how life works, what you want as an individual and how that fits into the big picture. It really comes down to knowledge in order to choose. And it's okay to make wrong decisions, but it's your decision. And that's the key takeaway. And in order to be happy with whatever happens, you made the decision with all of the data and all the information that you accumulated, and then you take ownership over it. I won't get long-winded about the, the title change right now. On the 200th episode, I'm going to be getting into what does intentional mean? What does intentional growth mean? How does that impact the decisions that you make? How to use the five principles as a guiding 
resource and tool for the decisions that you're going to be making now and especially as 2020 unfolds in a completely different story than we all thought it was going to be when we started January 1. We created this two-minute, 20-question assessment to help you understand how intentional you're being right now with your actions. I know there's a lot of people right now struggling to align their short-term issues or fires or investments or the things that they're doing with the long-term goal by keeping your eye on the horizon of what do you want from your business? Are you growing value? And are you making sure that you're not sacrificing that long-term goal with the ability to continue fixing your business right now or pivoting or building a new strategic plan to get you through and thrive once 2020 unfolds and we have to kick into 2021. So you can take this assessment. You can go to arcona.io slash assessment. Otherwise, you can text 66866. Text the word intentional. You get an email with the assessment. 20 questions. You'll come out with a score about how intentional you're being and how aligned your short-term goals are with your long-term goals. And then we have a vision board, which is called the Intentional Growth Vision Board that ties all the five principles into one page so you can look at your target EBITDA, your target valuation, the growth strategies you're working on. What do you want from your business? Making sure all this ties together so you can recalibrate what's important to you and put a plan in place. Check it out. Again, text 66866, the word intentional. Otherwise, go to arcona.io slash assessment. And I think today's episode is extremely timely and relevant because he literally worked really hard, grew himself, evolved his business, and did all the things that he knew he should do to get what he wanted. Too many of us entrepreneurs live with a sense of anxiety and passion or rush or whatever you want to call it from growing a business and trying to solve problems for clients or filling a need in the marketplace and getting immediate reward of revenue or showing that we're right and not realizing how that directly is aligned or unaligned with what you want from the business. Lloyd's going to share how he went from an accidental entrepreneur to what he did over the decades to become an intentional entrepreneur and then get what he wants. So he's going to share how he took his managed IT company from a freelancing gig to a full service IT company, how joining a business owner peer group helped him focus on the right KPIs and help him shift his business model and then become accountable to other people, not just himself. And then he evolved into implementing EOS and then how that got him out of his day-to-day so he can start thinking differently. And what he did is he shifted his mindset away from just the annual profit to focusing on EBITDA, multiple growth and value creation, and what is it that he eventually wants from the business to be financially free and then also from his employees, and how that value creation forced him to do different things in the business, like evolve his business model, shift to manage or on monthly reoccurring revenue, look at his leadership team differently, look at investing in the company to grow value. And then as he started growing value, he started reflecting on the things that he wanted from the company. And my favorite part of the episode is when Lloyd said that he had done all this education and all this hard work. And then he realized at one point that he was at peace because he knew that he was going to get what he wanted from the business because he had the the journey lined up for the employees, what was going to happen to them, what was going to happen to the customers. He was going to be financially free. He knew that his legacy was going to go on. He had lined up everything because he did the hard work to do it. Such a great story. And I really want you to pay attention to the hard work that Lloyd did because it is going to be worth it for you to do the same kind of hard work and the same kind of knowledge 
exploration that Lloyd did before making any decisions. With that being said, I hope you enjoy this interview with Lloyd Wolf. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Two days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Two days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of your journey as an entrepreneur. Lloyd, how are you today? I am well. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, we're coming from basement office to basement office. We are still cooped up. Uh, by the time this comes out, people might be getting a little bit, <laughs> they might be getting the red tape off of them in their homes. But for now, uh, this is going to be a good time to hear your story. You and I got in touch from old colleague of mine and a friend of yours and advisor of yours years ago, actually. We ran in the same space. I was in the IET services and then through the CEO peer groups that you're involved in. There's just, I think, a lot of dots to connect. So I'm excited to have you on the show and hear from the horse's mouth how you decided to you know, grow the company, what your journey was, and uh, what you're doing now because now you're, you flipped and now you're helping people. So it's good to be with you. Happy to be here. So um, let's, uh, for the listeners, let's give them the cliff note version. Okay, how did you, what, what was the business? And then what are you doing now? And then we can kind of go back into the sequential um, order of events because it uh, sounds like it was an accident like we were talking about that you became an entrepreneur and I'm, <laughs> I want to hear about it. Yeah, no, definitely accidental. I'm in the category of folks who are accidental entrepreneurs. I'm a lifelong resident of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with a degree in industrial engineering while working as a young industrial engineer, kind of fresh out of college in 1989. I started a part-time side business writing custom database programs for a few clients uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, If you're over 50 years old, the name DBase or DBase 3 Plus might sound familiar. If you're under 50, that probably doesn't mean anything. After a few years later, my full-time employer closed its doors. And at that time, I just decided to further spread my entrepreneurial wings. And I decided to increase the attention in my business from part-time to full-time and never looked back. Kind of in the years that followed, we I added computer support to the list of services in addition to computer networking. And in the decades that followed, we really transitioned to almost exclusively focus on computer networking. And the company grew into being one of the leading providers of computer support and cloud services for small and mid-sized businesses in the greater Pittsburgh area. We did quite well for ourselves and kind of consistently grew the business in terms of clients and revenue and profitability and employees. And I'm excited to to dive into your story because from Jim Carlisle, our connection, you know, and some of our previous calls, you know, you had a different focus and 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 it seemed to be, you know, you leaned more towards intentional, I would say, from the the people that I've talked to with kind of just your overall approach towards the business Lloyd. And you know, your exposure to other people in CEO peer groups, you, you and I both know that's not always the case. <laughs> and there's a, and especially now with, you know, how the pandemic is, I think, you know, kind of set a new normal on what's going on with people and how their relationship is with their business that they might have been caught off guard a little bit. And I think even if you would still have the business, I mean, you might disagree with me, but if you still had the business, I feel like you would have been one of the people that would have probably been all right and been able to take the the situation and hand kind of on how you had it set up. But like, let's go back. Because you know, when, when you said accidental and then you kind of got into networking, 
maybe we can start with the operations of the business and then how you trigger it into what your eventual plan was. You know, the, the, that industry, the managed IT industry went through a lot of evolutions as a business, as an industry, right? From break fix and block, blocks of hours to the overall like automated managed IT that I think is you know, becoming more predominant nowadays. You know, what were some of the things that you saw as you were growing the company? What were the, some of the milestones and struggles that you had as you were growing the business? Yeah, I think there are, there are probably a few of those. Uh, you know, every couple of years or so, we had to kind of reinvent ourselves. Although there were uh, there were some themes that kept recurring that uh, just kind of different twists on on those themes. You know, the first one was I'd say probably back in the late 1990s or so, kind of shifted to some type of recurring revenue. You know, nowadays we call them managed IT service providers, which are fancy <laughs> words, but we didn't have those words back then. But it was about the concept of trying to have some recurring revenue as opposed to just randomly taking support calls from clients whenever they had a problem and not talking again until the next time they had a problem. Now, it's kind of hard to predict. To, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the fire department, right? Yeah. You either have firefighters sitting around doing nothing or you got too many fires and you can't put them out. So at that the late 1990s, we started uh, what we branded as our Wolf Care Service. Uh, the company was Wolf Consulting, I should say. So we started our branded our Wolf Care Service, and it started with just like scheduled recurring on-site visits okay, with the client. Cool. So yeah. like we'd go on site for a half a day a week, or half a day a month, or one day a month, or something recurring, mm -hmm. and I could get people to kind of queue up most of the things that they needed done. And we do it during that scheduled on-site visit. And uh, I was the guy doing most of the, you know, a bunch of the on-site visits at the time. So that was kind of our first entrance into recurring revenue and that I knew each month I was going to get a certain amount of revenue. And as we added more clients and added more on-site visits, I could add more staff to support those clients. It became more predictable. In 2008 or so uh, was when we first got into the RMM software, remote monitoring and management software, mm -hmm. or made an investment in a software tool, put an agent program on each of the computers that we supported, the servers, desktops, and laptops. And we started supplementing our hourly rates, or even though I was selling monthly recurring on-site, they were still kind of in blocks of hours, yep, uh, yep. Not, not blocks of, hey, buy 100 hours and we'll use them up as you feel like it. But in terms of blocks of, hey, it's 10 hours a month and we'll do eight hours on site and a scheduled visit and then two hours of phone support. So when we got that RMM software to 2008 timeframe, we started with like a per device charge. So like there's a certain fee for every server, certain fee for every computer, every desktop and laptop. And for that flat fee, we would take care of monitoring the computer, looking for alerts, managing all the security updates, managing the antivirus generating some reports and they'd pay us a flat fee. So there was, that was kind of a milestone where we got into like per device billing. And then I'd say it was probably circa 2014-ish or so. Uh, we started with kind of a all-you-can-eat flat fee where we said, hey, let's just forget about this hourly rate charges and forget about the per server, per computer. There's just a, a flat fee that we came up with based on the size and scope of someone's network. That said, you know, you've got two servers and 30 computers between these two offices. It's going to be X thousand dollars a month. We'll take care of everything for you, except for this small list of exclusions like 
say major projects or moving your office or acquiring a company, but all the typical day-to-day types of things that you'd need to support that network, it's just included in that flat fee. And I mean, they were all versions of recurring revenue, just kind of different versions over different times. Well, and I, what I think was really interesting about uh, that industry, Lloyd, is like the maturity of the data that you have to have to make, make sure you're still making money, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, think about that's a lot of risks that you have to take on to manage someone's network and to be able to make sure you're also making good money while you're managing someone's network and managing the engineers who are expensive and all that kind of stuff. So I, I think what is interesting is, you know, as you build this, it's more, a more valuable business too. And and we can kind of get into some of the specifics of the industry and how you you shifted your mindset towards, you know, okay, I'm just an IT company to like, hey, I'm an entrepreneur and I've got a valuable, <laughs> valuable company here. And did you get like, maybe how did you, like we can start into the transition of how you, your business evolved like that from the, from the business model, right? To the reoccurring revenue, the managed IT. But mm-hmm. at the same time, were you, where in that spectrum were you evolving as an entrepreneur in your mindset for going, okay, this is no longer just break fix and Lloyd's making, you know, a salary, hopefully some distributions at some point, <laughs> you know, like wishing and hoping to, Hey, there's, there's something here that I can not only push because it's hard to sell manage you know manage IT contracts but then when you realize that you're building value you get a little bit more energized to do that so you know where in this uh, timeline did you you know join the peer groups did you start shifting your mindset and help you along that way yeah I mean with regarding like selling the business I mean that was really not a thought until much later on in the process originally as I mentioned it was just a side hustle if I made enough mm-hmm. extra cash to buy myself a new toy I was happy. Later, when I went full-time, after I lost my full-time job, uh, it became about supporting my wife and eventually uh, our first daughter and then our second daughter. So kind of supporting me and my family. I mean, ultimately, as the business grew, it you know became important to me to also support my employees and their families. Now, when you start to have the Christmas parties and the summer picnics and you, you get everybody together, their spouses and children, and you say, all these people are depending on the success of this company. Some pressure. So that, was, yeah, that was some pressure and kind of nice, nice to see and motivational. Yeah. I mean, in terms of kind of transitioning my thoughts as being the owner of the business, I, I say when I, when I talk with folks, I mean, over the course of 30 years with that business, I experienced all the aspects of entrepreneurship, including some nice successes, as well as my share of some miserable mistakes, setbacks, sleepless nights, and crazy long work weeks. Um, I also received many blessings, and really two of those blessings are ones that I often talk about. One of them was the peer groups, and you mentioned that. You know, I was blessed to have been introduced to Arlen Sorensen in the 2010 timeframe, and Arlen had put together what at the time was known as HTG peer groups, Heartland Technologies Groups. A few years ago, Arlen sold the organization to ConnectWise, and it's now known as the Evolve Peer Group. So if I say HTG or Evolve, it's the same All thing. Arlen's been on the podcast. It's been a couple of years, but... <laughs> yes. So I, I, I got to, to meet Arlen and joined the HTG Peer Groups, as it was known at the time. And that was really where I kind of learned the value of peer groups and the open and honest sharing that you get. Uh, by sharing successes, failures, best practices in both business and in life with a group of fellow entrepreneurs and business leaders. What, what year did you join that? Did that was you, 2010. 2010. Okay, 2010. Yeah, so, 2010. Yeah. April, to, April 2010 was my first okay. meeting. I remember it fondly. 
because it was really different. I mean, back in the day, you had to basically audition for the group. So I, I was assigned this group. Uh, a nice guy, Brian, had uh, talked to me before the meeting to kind of prepare me. I had a slide deck I had to prepare. They used service leadership benchmarking. So I had to enter in all of my oh, yeah. financial revenue, cost of goods sold, margins, SG&A expenses, employees, a lot of data. Had to fill it all in, and I went into this meeting for two days with these other businesses. Two and days back then, wow, it was two two days. Yeah. Um, got to watch them talk about each other's business, and then there was a point where it was my turn, and I got up and talked about my business. And back in the day, they voted whether or not you were allowed to stay in the group or not. <laughs> oh, brutal. So they, they literally, I I went down to the vendor pavilion, <laughs> and I'm walking around, and I'm waiting, and I there's this movie moment where Brian, I see Brian across the room and he's walking toward me and I don't know what he's going to say. And like American Idol. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you know, like shook my hand, said, congratulations. The group would love to have you be a part of our group. And oh my gosh. I came back and told my staff, I mean, it was life changing for me being in this meeting. And these people became best friends, business advisors on, on both successes and failure. I mean, just what mm-hmm. worked and what didn't work. So what, what, what I find, and I want the listeners to really like understand the gravity of this is like, I've been part of and speak a lot to tons of peer groups. So service leadership, you mentioned, and just for some context for the listeners that might be from other industries, that is an industry benchmark, right? So if I had to manage IT company that was doing 5 million and you had one that was doing 5 million and we put in all of our cost of goods and our revenue and everything like that, we would be able to actually measure, monitor how well we're each doing in different areas, cost structures and profitability and all that stuff tons and tons and tons of CEO peer groups don't do this, Lloyd. like in trade associations. So you just go in there and you have the ability for all these entrepreneurs to totally bullshit each other. <laughs> like, And when it's like, I remember walking up going, well, no one knows how well they're, they're doing. There might be $20 million, but they might be losing money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. No, it, definitely. I mean, these became, I mean, as the owner of a business, there was prior to the peer groups, there was really no one that could hold me accountable, right? <laughs> yeah, if I had just... <laughs> goal, goals or aspirations, I kept them to myself most, you know, for the most part, some I shared with the staff, but not the deepest, darkest secret ones, you know, they were in my head. So if I, if I met my goals, great. I had a little party in my head. And if I didn't meet my goals, who cared? No one knew. But over time, like they were the ones that held me accountable, um, with the HTG now Evolve Peer Groups, I mean, they get together on a quarterly basis for two days of in-person meetings. So, I mean, I had to go every quarter and with with my financials and say, here's how I did or didn't do. And here's the goals that I said I was going to do last quarter. And they're either done or not done. And people could hold me accountable. And I love the financial reporting in that too, because like it just, it, and that's why I think that from my experience, the managed IT industry is just more, it is unique because of the, the exposure to the other people's financials, right? And having an actual benchmark that says, okay, this is like what good looks like financially, not just made up. Cause I remember Lloyd, you know, back in the copier industry, you could say, hey, I'm doing this well. And you're like, well, where do you put your trainers? What department? And then everybody's different. And <laughs> you really have no idea how to judge who's doing what. Now having a standard system to benchmark against each other was extremely helpful. Um, I got to see detailed information for the 10 or so members of my specific group. 
Um, and then I got to see averages for all of the folks w- within our group and within HTG and with the industry in general. And uh, service leadership has a concept they call best in class, which is take the top quartile performers and see what are their averages. So you know, I could see how I'm doing with regard to my gross margin percentages or my EBITDA percentages or what's my multiple of W2 and just all kinds of different ways to slice it. I could see how I'm doing over the past quarter and over the past year, me against myself, like over the past four quarters, have I made progress in the right direction or not? But then how do I compare to my group and how do I compare the industry at whole? Our group also, uh, one of the gentlemen in our group had a personal passion for working with Gallup and employee engagement and got into the, the Q12 employee engagement surveys. And our specific group added measuring employee engagement to our benchmarking and reporting Mm -hmm. uh, because we recognized that you could have awesome numbers when it came to revenue or gross margin or EBITDA. But if people hated coming to work and your employees were not engaged, that if you were doing well financially, that wouldn't last as long as it would last if you had highly engaged employees who got along well and who enjoyed spending time with each other and who you could motivate and challenge and who just enjoyed coming to work. Uh, So we added that the Gallup Q12 survey as one of the measuring tools that our specific group did with each other multiple times a year. And we'd compare ourselves to Gallup industry benchmarks and to each other. And again, to my own company over time, Mm -hmm. like were we, were we progressing? So, which I think is just awesome. And what was it like your transformation in your, your mental state, right? Like as in like your perception of how you were viewing your company, like maybe like, what was it like going in there? What, what were you focused on going in there? And then how did your focus change over the years from the business and from the peer group and these kind of dashboards and, and education that you were getting? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the classic phrase about working on the business instead of working in the business. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely that. I mean, those were two days, a quarter where I spent working on the business and you know, working on goals and being intentional, kind of decide we would have to decide. Uh, this was before uh, we implemented EOS, which I, sh- I should at some point I'll mention was the second blessing that I received. Mm-hmm. Uh, so bef- with EOS, we have quarterly goals and annual plans. But before then, just within the peer group, we talked about goals for the quarter. So just being intentional with what's the most important thing that I say we're going to that need to get done over the next quarter and then focusing on that over the quarter and then being held accountable at the end of the quarter to whether or not we got it done or not. And eventually with Arlen's guidance, the leadership of the peer group started to introduce conversations about exiting the business and some basic calculations of you know how much money do you need to exit the business? How much is the business worth today? And what is the difference between those two numbers? (laughs) And then what's your plan to, you know, what's the gap? And then what's your plan to close that gap? Um, So it's really those conversations that Arlen started with the groups and that then took on a life of its own within our group that started me being intentional about the value of the business and what did I need to get the business to a point that it was as valuable to someone else that they would uh, pay me money for it. 
So, and, and this is where it was so intri- intriguing when I interviewed Arlen like three years ago or two years ago, it was, he said this, I'm like, wow, you're, you're the, the education that they were teaching in HCG is similar to what we have preach as well. And so what you just said is when you talked about like the, the shift from annual income to valuation and value growth, when you started learning this stuff, Lloyd, how did that translate into different strategies in the business? Did you look at the business different? And I mean, did you start doing things different and investing different? And and I mean, what did that do? What was the ripple effect of that? Yeah, no, there's definitely some things that we did different. I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's all kind of a blur over 30 years with the company, but specifically the recurring revenue, it was clear that Buyers of IT service providers valued recurring revenue much more than they did, valued recurring services revenue much more than they valued non recurring services revenue, which was valued much more than just product resale, hardware and software resale revenue. Um, So, a specific thing that we did was we just decided that uh, we were a managed services company and we only had managed services clients. Okay. What did that mean for like your allocation of clients and stuff like that? Did what was that a bit was that a big deal for you at that point? I mean, for most of our clients, they were recurring and that it's kind of what I had focused on in the first place. But as we began to grow the company and as I hired salespeople to go out and and sell, I kind of had to give them boundaries to work in. And it, it's tough when you're talking with a perspective, you're the salesperson and you're talking with a client who says, hey, we need help with our server migration. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> like a dog, there, right? <laughs> there's revenue and we help people with servers, let's do it. And it's like, no, like we help our clients with server migrations, but first you have to be a client. Mm-hmm. And to just give the the sales folks that we're doing business development, the very strict guidelines. And so we only do project. We'll do projects, but only for recurring clients. And we'll fix things that are broken, but only for recurring clients. And if there's a prospect who's only looking for some break-fix work or only looking for some project work, let's share with them about how we work with our clients and how we think that's the best way. I mean, I still believe, do you really want someone coming in and ripping out and replacing your entire network with a project who is not responsible for the ongoing support of that network? Right. Right. In my mind, like, I, oh my I mean, God. I mean, yeah. Just this, this company parachutes in, rips everything out, replaces it with something different, and then leaves. And you're stuck no, with I, it if yeah, you're the right. client. Yeah. Where, um, where so is I the truly need on the believe, haystack? You know, I truly believe that they were best served by having a client first, by having a IT provider who was first responsible for managing the network and then working with them if there, in fact, needed to be a project. Um, um, but very intentional because we passed on a lot of business that would have been project only or break fix only. And then also being very intentional about our target market and who was our target market client, which in our case were small and mid-sized businesses that we kind of defined as companies that had 10 to 100 computers who were used computers and technology to run their companies and really depended on it to be done well. Uh, but who it didn't make sense for them to hire a yeah. full-time in-house IT person and who were willing to pay a win-win price for the services that we provided. And those were our target clients and just focusing on on those and that being very 
quick to just pass on opportunities that were not did not meet that target client profile and just spend the time finding more people who were target client profile. I've found that when that shift in mindset happens, when you're focused on the long-term value of the business, it puts a lens of clarity on what you just described, right? Because like what you just described, Lloyd, is really hard work, right? I mean, you make it sound like, oh yeah, we just hired the salespeople. Telling a lot of salespeople no is hard, right? That's a lot of drama, a lot of BS that goes on to make sure that they're focused and then to be able to train your clients. And yet, like I believe that if people understand why they're doing it, the hard work is worth it. And then there's also a financial reward at the end of it as well. So like, have you, did you notice like that's, like, or, or even amongst your peers, once you started thinking about that stuff long-term that you're just naturally building a healthier business and it makes all the hard work, like it gives it a, a purpose behind it? Uh, definitely. I mean, and we truly believed, um, you know, over time, the employees came to understand it also and truly believe in it. And, and I, you know, at first for me, it was probably more an intellectual exercise. Like if we do this, it will make sense. It will work out. I th- I think, right? Like the first faith, time, like, faith. Faith, you know, but later once it started, it was the, the flywheel type thing. Like yep. once we started to see success with it and, you know, once we onboard more and more clients that really are target client profile and we really provided them with great service and then they would refer us to people they know who are in similar situations and you get on more clients who are target market and in your core focus. I mean, it just, you know, kept kept the flywheel kept spinning and uh, it was easier at that point to say well of course this makes perfect sense why would we do it any other way uh, but it, you know it, it took a while it took a while to get there so you had mentioned uh, like how Arlen had brought up the word exit and so here here's the the conundrum i think a lot of entrepreneurs deal with where and and i actually i, I don't know if you and I on a previous call I was talking about this but like so because we got rid of the word exit off of everything however you have to build a valuable business with the end in mind right but like there's this like paradigm shift that has to happen of okay if i build a valuable business i have more options right but i have to learn about exits to have more options to build a more valuable business doesn't mean i want to sell <laughs> like right, right. It, it, like and it's just that needs to be beat out of people's head that you don't need to sell. And the reason I'm getting into this, cause you, you kind of explored your options knowing that you didn't have to. And I think you did a, you did a very cool way of doing this without having to commit to something. Right. Cause you, you so as you think about like this word exit, what did you, how did you start exploring it? And was it, it, was it personal? Was it like secretive? Was it just in your peer group? Did you have it end in mind? Like, how did you start that intellectual and educational journey? And like, yeah. how did you perceive it? No, fair, fair enough. Uh, let's see if I can't go back in time. So again, started the business in 1989, uh, went full-time in 1992, uh, joined the peer groups in 2010, <laughs> yeah, uh, the big jump. <laughs> Ar- Arlen starts talking about what's your number, you know, what what does your number need to be? What is your business worth today? What's the gap between the two? That was probably circa 2014, 2000, okay. yeah, 2014 or so. So at that point, it was like, well, there's a gap there. So I can't sell the business because there's a gap. So I have to just keep building it until it's worth as much to someone on the outside as it needs to be to hit my number. But you learned so, about valuations, sorry to interrupt, but like you learned yes. about valuations right there in order to understand. In order to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, just right, right. Un- under, I mean, uh, through service leadership provides a lot of consulting services to the peer groups. 
And some people look at multiples of revenue. Some people look at multiples of EBITDA. Some look at a blend of the two. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, most of the buyers that I were talking to were looking at multiples of EBITDA. But you were learning it, like which I think is yeah. the interesting part. Because I've interviewed uh, on my podcast like, that have never even heard. Like they sold their business and didn't know what EBITDA was. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was through that through that process. Like, I mean, through the peer groups, I learned about EBITDA. And first, mm-hmm. I didn't know what EBITDA was when I went right. to the peer group. I'm like, what's EBITDA? And they're like, well, it's it's earnings before interest taxes. I'm like, well, <laughs> what? what do I care about earnings before expenses? Like, <laughs> I just look at profit at the bottom, counting all the expenses. Um, but I do realize that some businesses are structured differently and that it's a normal way that lots of business people look at businesses. So it's a standard <laughs> method. So I learned about EBITDA. And you know, through the peer groups, kind of increased our EBITDA, increased our revenue and gross margins and EBITDA over time. And then you know, really, I started kind of two things were going on. One was uh, I needed to get the business to a point where it was worth enough to someone on the outside that they would pay me what I needed in order to exit. But separately, I was still too involved in too many areas of the business. You know, I had someone that was running service. I had someone that was running finance, but really I was still running business development. I was still overseeing account management. I was still doing a lot of business development. I was still doing all the HR. I was still doing all the marketing. So when I said before, there were two blessings that I received. So one was the peer groups. The other one was when a a trusted business friend of mine handed me a copy of the book, Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business by Gino Wickman. Um, circa 2015. And it's talking about EOS, the entrepreneurial operating system. And what eventually became my leadership team, kind of the leaders of the different departments in my company, we we liked what we heard, we liked what we read. So we hired an implementer and began our EOS journey. And we successfully implemented the EOS concepts and tools for the last three plus years I was running the business. And they still use EOS today, but creating a leadership team and having a a structure in which we would run the business where we'd have our our core values and our our core focus and our 10-year target and our marketing plan and our three-year picture and our our, our, Mm -hmm. 10-year vision, three-year picture, one-year plan, quarterly rocks, kind of implementing that system where I was a member of the leadership team. And in EOS language, I was the integrator for the company, the, the kind of the person that beats the drum and integrates between all of the different functional areas, making decisions for the greater good of the company was me. Did, but, you, did you hire a visionary? No. So I, I was the visionary also. Okay. But there were I was in too many seats in our accountability chart, mm-hmm. and there was no structure for a leadership team. So... In 2015, late 2015, early 2016, we hired an implementer and kind of started, we started implementing EOS. And over the next three years, while I was building value in the business, we were also implementing a structure and a system, an operating system, if you will, that could, the business could run without Lloyd mm-hmm. having his hands in every nitty picky little thing about the business. I was definitely a hands on owner. Wait, wait, um, were you an engineer? Is that yes. what you said? <laughs> how about that? Yes. How about yeah, how that? About that? <laughs> um, so I was definitely hands-on and it was tough for me. I was hands-on. I grew up, my entire adulthood was this business. I did every role in the business. And 
you know, I, it was a, a, a gift. It was a blessing and a curse mm-hmm. to, to know every, you know, so much about every role in the company. Uh, so while building value in the company um, along a, a way to exit without necessarily using the word exit, mm-hmm. I was also implementing EOS, which was a way that we could, the business could run without Lloyd. And you kind of have this tight thing between there's Lloyd, the owner, Lloyd, the CEO, the business, Wolf Consulting, and there's this evil twist where it's all together um, and <laughs> like helping separate like, okay, there's the owner's box. There's the integrator or CEO box for the guy who runs the business. There's these other boxes for the other people who are responsible for the functional areas of the business. We all have a common set of core values that help define who are the right people in our organization, the people we want in the company and want to be around. We define the roles of each person in the org- of, of each function in the organization, make sure we have right people in the right seats. Uh, that we all share a common vision for where we're going. So having that system in place helped me build the value, but was kind of another piece to the puzzle. So for when I went to exit, having that in place was definitely a positive attribute. Well, I want to dig into a couple of things there too, because um, I find kind of the unique or the, the the ingredients to success here is that you had the service leadership model and then the HTG helping you understand value creation and, and then you implement it with the US. It's kind of like what we preach of, we've got our five principles, which helps you focus on value creation and then it's implemented using EOS. And so the reason I'm bringing that up is because you, I'm curious, like how did you use both of those? And in the reason I'm asking is because I see a lot of people that don't understand value creation, Lloyd, and they're running EOS and they're just implementing the wrong things. And it's not value creating. And so like what you described of decoupling yourself, Mr. Engineer, who knows everything, would you have been able to do it as successfully if you didn't understand value creation? Does this make sense? I mean, the part was the the value creation part or just answering Arlen's simple question of the financial targets. I I think that's your second principle of your principles, right? Your financial targets. Like, you know, what do I need? Over here's my personal wealth. I mean, here's the money that we've built up. And uh, here's the gap between what the business is worth today. Because, I mean, Arlen preaches the, the story of, sadly, the number of phone calls he's gotten over the years from someone who says, hey, Arlen, I'm 60, 65 years old. And I've been working 20, 30 years in this business all day, every day. And I was, it was going to be my retirement. And I'm talking to someone about buying it. And they don't want to give me nearly what I need to live off of what am i going to do and so that that's arlen's story behind introducing the conversation of value upfront, creation yeah. like value creation so that you got to know what what do you need and what's the business worth and what's a minus b or the gap and then how are you going to fill that gap because he said he didn't want to get more of those phone calls mm-hmm. um, so arlen taught me you know like so i'm building to a number yeah and the right number too, which is the right, crucial. Yeah, yeah. The, right, the right number. I mean, I, I had on my list of advisors, I had a personal financial advisor who was able to help guide me uh, personally. I mean, other people might be different, but personally, uh, I wanted to get enough money cash at closing that after taxes, after fees, after advisors, after Uncle Sam, after bonuses to employees, that if you take the net, net, net money that was left and add it to what my wife Rose and I had already saved by 
investing profits from the business over the mm-hmm. years that the financial people said, Lloyd, you're be good. good. For, good. You're, you're good for life. That I didn't want to still own the business. I, I, I didn't want to still have to have the business to work, to work <laughs> after I else. wasn't running it uh, in order to meet my number. So that was one of the, the things. So, in fact, al- along my journey, I could add, so I really like Arlen starts talking about this, the numbers, probably 2014, 2015. 2016 was really when I started finally returning some phone calls and some voicemails or emails from people who found their way into my inbox with their messages or my voicemail saying like, hey, we'd like to talk to you about buying your business. And as I started talking with them, as quickly as I could get to, I wanted to know how they would value the business and what what was the enterprise value. Before we get to that, let I'm curious, what got you to the point where you started answering those phone calls? Like what made you comfortable? What made you comfortable answering those phone calls and emails? And then why did, what was the time? What, what helped yeah. you? I think it was probably more just out of curiosity. So like, well, let's see. Okay. I, I, you know, the peer groups say it's worth X or it's a multiple of, you know, multiple of your EBITDA. I kind of have in my head. So we've been filling out in the peer group quarterly reports, what my business is worth. But that's really just an opinion of 10 guys sitting around a table, none of which are ready to stroke a check to me. <laughs> yeah. So like, it was just kind of more the next step in the curiosity. Am I like really on track with when I say, I think the business is currently worth X? How true is that? So it was just an exercise to start talk to people yeah, about yeah, that. Which I think is fantastic. And do, do you think, or I'm curious on where your confidence in your education played a role because I think there's a lot of people where they don't do that because they just don't even know what the heck, how to even have those conversations. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, it was probably over about 18 months that I had those conversations with prospective suitors. It was not all day, every day. It was you know, every now and then. I, I It was on the advice of a friend, the same friend who gave me the, the traction book, told a story of one of his clients who spent so much time selling the business that he took his eye off running the business and the business declined. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of had a little box and every now and then I'd allow myself to open the box and work on <laughs> exiting the business and then close the box and get back down into you know, running the business. So I got better over time. I, mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't very polished. It was quite the rookie, the first phone call with someone. And they asked me some questions. I gave them some answers. They gave me a number uh, that was way lower than my number and way lower than what people in the peer group were saying it was worth. And it's like, okay, yikes. Uh, Maybe someone else will give me a different number. So, I mean, over the course of 18 months, it kind of went on a process of talking to a handful. I don't mean to say I was talking with hundreds of people. A handful of people. And then I got better at answering their questions. That's awesome. I, I, I I knew what to answer. And they ultimately got some people who said like, we'll pay you X. And it was the number that I wanted. So let's pull that thread right there because did you have an understanding of enterprise value, which is what they're talking about? And then the underneath the underworks of deal structures, net proceeds. Yeah. So that's where I'm video and you're shaking your head for everybody. No, no. no. So (laughs) the first one was Arlen's question was, what's your number? Right. right. What, what's the, what's it going to be? So I'm talking to people trying to get the number and then, Hey, someone gives me the number. Great. He says, we're going to send over a letter of intent. I'm like, super. 
Then I get the letter. And a bank wire? No. <laughs> and it, it starts using words like, we will pay you a third of the money up front. And a third of the money will be a seller note for which we will pay you interest-only payments for the next five years. And we'll pay you a balloon payment of the principal in the end of year five. And the other third, we're going to roll that into equity in the, the, the new company. And we're going to grow it. And when we sell it in five years, it's going to be worth even more. And like, oh, okay, that's called deal structure. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my next lesson. So it's like, okay, it's not just the number. It's the number in the deal structure. So that's when I kind of formulated the phrase saying I needed enough money, cash at closing, paid up front, that after taxes and fees and advisors and bonuses and whatever, like that number added to my existing savings would have made me good for life. So it was another eye-opener. Nine, <laughs> nine plus months of talking to people, again, occasionally, not all yep. the time, but talking to a handful of people until really in uh, September of 2017. So I, I started kind of really with my first serious conversation with someone in the spring of 2016. So fall of 2017, I I was blessed to have three LOIs from three buyers who were giving me number one, the right number, and number two, the right deal structure that I was going to decide between. And and that's when really the third item on my list appeared that I hadn't really given any thought to ahead of time, which was what was the outcome I wanted for the business? Because two of the prospective buyers were going to make major changes to the business. One was an international company looking for a U.S. presence. One was an existing, well-known regional IT service provider that was looking for an office in Pittsburgh. And they were going to make just major changes to the company as we knew it. Uh, Rebranding under the new owner's name, new software tools for all the employees to use and to deploy to the customers, new packaging and pricing to the customers. Mm -hmm. very different. You know, like Lloyd, your employees are going to love our core values when we tell them to them the day that we announce that they're now part of this other company. The third offer I received, the third LOI I had was from a private equity firm that was going to allow us to be a platform company and continue to run business as usual. It would have been the same company. They it was really a transaction between Lloyd the shareholder and them the buyer of the, the stock. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't really thought of that before. Like I was mostly focused on the number and the yep. deal structure. And when I really thought about someone coming in and kind of gutting the business and really making a lot of changes for the employees and their daily life and maybe losing some or many of the employees because the buyer didn't necessarily need people in different departments because they already had them. That's when I began to think about the third checkbox on my list, which was the outcome for the business. And I ultimately decided to go with the offer from, uh, it's public information, it was Evergreen Services Group. They're a private equity firm out of San Francisco, California. They have a people-first mindset and gave me the opportunity for it to be the platform company. And that felt right. Uh, It it wasn't actually the highest offer that I received. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. The other two offers were for slightly more money, like 10% more, call it. But the outcome for the business turned out to be equally as important and provided that I could check the first two boxes that met the number and the deal structure. And I could now check my third checkbox, 
the right outcome for the business. For me, that was check, check, check. I'm done here. I've found the next home for the company. I'm so happy for you. And I think about what I really want to put a huge explanation point on Lloyd is your ability to make those decisions. So like the reason that in our five principles, we got your drivers first, which is the outcome for your employees. And Mm -hmm. then the financial targets next is like, you have the data to say, I don't need that 10%, right? I mean, like explain like the, like, honestly, I want to hear from you. Like, what did that feel like to have the ability to have the data and make that decision? Because if you have seen other entrepreneurs where they can't make that decision accurately because they don't know those numbers, but they, yeah. they, they have the same desires as you, but they might just not have the information. No, it made it. I mean, being able to know that I was, ma- I mean, it really helped me feel, I mean, this was very, uh, there's turmoil in my head, right? If you had a cartoon with all these characters in my head, with all these <laughs> lots emotions, of talking, <laughs> lots of talking going on in my head, but it was really at the moment when I realized I could take care of myself and my family with the right number the right value, enterprise value for the business and the right payment deal structure, payment structure. Um, but then I could also take care of my employees and their families and the clients. Like I wasn't doing a bunch of drama for the clients either. Mm-hmm. It was just, you know, it was rather uneventful when we actually announced the sale to the clients because it was bus- it was a nice story. It was just going to be business as usual. So it, having the information and being able to make that decision just allowed me to for lack of a better word, just say I was at peace. Like there was a lot of turmoil, but when I was finally able to check all those boxes, the right outcome for me, the right outcome for the business, I was at peace saying like, I found the right buyer and this is the right deal. I I mean, that honestly, I can say that is what our mission has been trying to be is to give people that. And it just... It's so difficult, Lloyd, because it takes education, takes the hard work that you put into it to be able to know that it's right. I mean, that's the true options, right? You could have said no, right? I mean, like you didn't have to sell, right? I mean, I mean, that maybe you were. I don't know what was leading you to the point that you wanted a transition, but too many times people are forced. They don't have the right data, then the regrets come, or the you know anxiety of going, don't know if it's a number, don't know what's going to happen, don't know if it's the right buyer. There's a lot of unknowns, but they just sign it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I could imagine. Imagine, I would, I would, it would have been very, very upsetting to me to have gone through all that, sold the business, and then find out it wasn't the right number or I picked the wrong outcome. Like just, you know, being able to have those things <laughs> I know. known up front with some trusted advisors who helped me kind of figure those things out. I was able to kind of, that's what I'm looking for. Like, you know, I've talked to Arlen a, a couple of times through my journey saying, like, how do I know this is the right deal? You know, like, Mm-hmm. It's like, look, you, you make your list of what you're looking for. And if it doesn't check all your boxes, then it's not the right deal. And l- unless you're desperate and you have to sell, but I was blessed. We didn't have to sell. Right. I was just kind of waiting for the right. How many employees did you guys have at that point? I'm going to say 35-ish or okay. so. Uh, we added a few more. When I left the company last uh, spring, there were 40 employees and they're still growing Without me, just doing just fine without me. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things on that, on that, on the kind of the overall process, you know, what was the process that you did take it to market? Was it just answering these phone calls and then putting them together? So like, how did you use that? And then how, as these buyers are reaching out to you in, in different forms, I don't know how far you got into due diligence or anything like that with these different buyers, but what did you realize that these people were, were valuing? You know, how did that, you know, was there certain things that were hangups from due diligence or operations or anything like that? 
Yeah, I mean, they were all looking at Rick. I mean, they they pretty much were all in the same boat in the IT service provider space. I mean, some basic numbers. I mean, mm-hmm. what's your what's your revenue? What's your EBITDA? Uh, how much of your revenue comes from contracted monthly recurring services? Mm-hmm. What's your client concentration? So I I think I mentioned I was an accidental entrepreneur because the full time company I was working at went out of business. What I didn't say was why they went out of business. <laughs> um, they went out of business because their largest customer was like a third of their revenue. And yeah. that customer went dark overnight, which caused my employer to go into a tailspin. And in the matter of a few months, several hundred of us were, were unemployed. Mm-hmm. So that was my first lesson in client concentration. <laughs> um, it wasn't labeled that way in business school. But on on this, I was terrified of having a customer that was a large percentage of my revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when For we sold, reasons, yeah. when we were when I was talking with prospective buyers, uh, like our largest three customers were each like three and a half percent of our business. That the three top together were ten percent of our wow. business. Wow, that's awesome! And uh, that was by design because I was petrified of having a large a, a cl- one single client be a huge percentage of our revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, so client concentration, it's a long way to get to answer your no, question. That's great. They it. wanted they wanted to see client concentration, <laughs> like mm-hmm. how much was recurring revenue and client concentration. Client EBITDA. concentration. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I was able to really over time, again, I, I don't mean to make it sound like I was talking to 200 prospective companies, but I did probably talk with 20 mm-hmm. or so over time. And um, they had a certain set of questions that they would ask. And ultimately I got to the point where I just had some spreadsheets put together. Mm-hmm. That from information from our peer group meetings, where I had what was our income statement over the last three years by year and by month for the last twelve months. Mm-hmm. Same thing with balance sheet. Here's our monthly recurring revenue. You kind of hide hide the client information, but here's the client one through client one hundred, their revenue and the percentages of revenue. Here's my employees. How long have they been with us? Not the names, but again, roles or could show that we had employees that had been with the company for fifteen plus years. So we could retain them, but we also had employees who we had onboarded over the last six months that showed we knew how to recruit and hire new people. Um, so I only went through the actual due diligence process with the one and only company that I that I sold to. Wow, good for you! Um, and that was a, a fast paced two months of of time. We it, was there anything that came out of that came out of that that you that you were surprised by? No, there was nothing that I'd say took me by surprise. Um, one of the things that I've done a session at the IT Nation Connect conference and also Arlen runs some M&A peer groups that he's invited me back to talk to. And uh, two of the lessons that I share with them that I learned during my journey was, well, a couple lessons. One was the, the, the three things that I mentioned before, your number, the deal structure, and the outcome you want for the business. I actually had a fourth one, which was, what's your intention after the sale? Do you want to continue to work for the business and for mm-hmm. how long or... If not, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So those are the four things I tell them to think about. The second thing I tell them to think about is to have that presentation package available so that when someone asks you for information, you can respond, like sign the non-disclosure agreement and send them your stuff without spending a lot of time on it. So that was an advice. The third piece of advice that I give them is to prepare for due diligence in advance. So there was nothing in due diligence that they asked for that I thought was unfair or unreasonable. It was nothing that I couldn't get my hands on, but it was also most of which 
I had access to, but I didn't have it in a manner that was easily provided to a company doing diligence on my company. So did I have contracts with all my clients? Yes. Were they in the ConnectWise managed software as a PDF attachment? Yes. But when the buyer says, hey, we'd like to see copies of all your client contracts, I mean, that's Lloyd spending a weekend at the office going into ConnectWise Manage for every customer and downloading the PDFs into a folder. And yeah. you know, did I have all our old tax returns? Yes, they were in various places, but I didn't have them in a folder scanned, ready to upload. And did I have employment agreements with every employee? Yes, they were in the employee physical file in the drawer in my office, but they weren't ready to provide during due diligence. So I spend nights and weekends like scanning employee files and did we have insurance yet a file a file clerk yes. overnight you know, did we have insurance yes where are my policies i don't they're in my email here somewhere <laughs> let me find them um, so i think the the thing there was nothing unreasonable that they asked for it all seemed fair it was comprehensive i mean it's getting the proctology exam that every seller oh, deserves sure. um, but i could have if i had only spent time doing those things in advance that you just prepare the folder with all the contracts with all the clients and have the folder with all the employment agreements for all the employees and all the contracts with your service providers and all the tax returns and all the insurance policies. And then it's little to no work. Every time you sign a new client, you just take their agreement and stick it in the legal folder. And every time you hire well, an employee, you scan the document and stick it in there. So when the buyer says, we're going to need to see all this stuff, you say, okay, here's a zip file. To upload it to a well, theater and room. that right there, it's not just for in in. I think of what just to make sure I'm giving this the, the right um, underlying purpose of the 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 story for the listeners. It's not just about saving time. It's about the trust that the and the confidence that the buyer has with your information, right? Because like it's people might say, "Oh, that sounds like a lot of work. I'll just do it when I'm ready to sell." But you're, I mean, I watch people and the price goes down in due diligence because the buyer just doesn't trust because the person's showing their kind of character is they're all over the place. Yeah, no, it was, it was good that I had. So I did have all that information, so that was good. Uh, the way I was able to turn it around in a matter of say like two weeks was because I spent like nights and weekends at the office for two weeks by myself because I was the only person who knew what was going on to to get all those in a format that I could share with you know I could easily deliver mm -hmm. to the the buyer and their advisors who were who were looking at it uh, but the fact that I had it was very helpful and the fact that we had we've already established the fact that I'm uh, <laughs> Uh, like the tightly, and because of the peer groups and because of the way that I was kind of fanatical about details, uh, we had very clean finances. Um, mm -hmm. so when the buyers were digging into the finances, I mean, everything, yeah, there, there was no there there to find, like everything was clean. Yeah. It was organized. There was no digging or explaining needed. They and the confidence that when they asked questions on the finances that we had quick answers, they were correct answers, and they had very mm -hmm. few questions in the first place because everything was clean. The fact we were mm -hmm. able to provide them with all their due diligence documents in a matter of, say, two weeks or so. Did your price hold and stay to what they originally uh, offered? Yes. Actually, we, we closed on the exact terms yeah. that they originally... That's very rare. So then when on those on those uh when you talk about having because I know we're running short on here in time, but the uh, the thing that I'm curious when you talk about having a plan for after, 
So like, and you had already mentioned that as you were implementing EOS, you had already separated your ownership versus the management mm-hmm. role. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with that. I've done a couple uh, interviews recently where we've unpacked like, hey, your salary is different than your ownership yes. role and your role. And so EOS definitely helps separate those two. What did you have planned for both of those? So you got enough cash up at, at closing to satisfy your financial needs. Then you have this vision for the business and maybe kind of explain the platform. So what was the vision for the business that aligned with you? Where you said, okay, this makes a lot of sense. And then what was your vision for your role? And how did all of those stories kind of unfold? You mean, you mean while I was running the business or while I was exiting the business? So like when it, yeah, while you're exit, while in the process, process of exiting. exiting and then like, so like, cause like as you've got in your, like, let's maybe I'll clarify this a little bit. So as you're in due diligence, you've probably in your head going, okay, this is, this is my plan for my money. I don't know if you rolled some money into the private equity firm. You got enough of a closing. So I think the reason I'm giving this is, with rolled equity, people have a different level of care for what happens to the business yeah. afterwards. <laughs> um, and that, but you know, then what is what was your envision for the business and your yeah. role? And what so the, was the, the ongoing... for the business? It was what I came to term as business as usual. We were just continuing on the same track, being a leading provider of computer support for small and mid-sized businesses in Pittsburgh, kind of a, a white glove or higher end service type of organization. You know, really. Per- really providing change. great service. And it was intention to keep that going. Uh, it was intentional that we were going to continue to operate as a, our own independent business and not just become a local branch office for some bigger organization. Mm-hmm. That we were going to continue with the EOS process was, was all part of the plan. They, we, I talked with the, the buyer about my ongoing role and they gave me the chance to kind of leave on day one or day zero or stay. I decided I wanted to stay really for two reasons. Uh, one, because I didn't quite else know what else I wanted to do. I mean, this was at that point, 29 years of doing it. I, I didn't quite know what else I wanted to do. So it was comfortable to stay. And also they made promises for what they would do and not do. And Kind of the trust but verify. I thought that I could hold yep. them more accountable to doing what they said they would do or not do if I was still running the company than if I left right away. Um, so mm-hmm. over the course of the next year, I, I became more comfortable with them. They did everything they said they would do. They had oh, placed so cool. a, a CEO in training in the company who worked under me for that first year. And that was your, you, you knew that, right? So they weren't like, you know, they weren't trying to push no, you. No, it was, that it was, was completely uh, yeah. mutual. I mean, we certainly knew I had run the business for 29 years and I wasn't going to run it for another 29. So that wasn't a secret, mm-hmm. but there was no necessarily date on the calendar when I would leave. Um, so Elliot came in and he took on the role of director of business development. So in our EOS uh, accountability chart, I had my name in the also the director of business development role where I was overseeing new business. Um, okay. So he came on and filled that role very well. Got it. And as a became a member of the leadership team right away, and and bonded really well with the leadership team. Got to learn the business by kind of working in the business uh, at a rapid pace, but but still had that year. And really, once 2019 hit, the company was celebrating its 30th year anniversary. Elliot was doing great, and. The timing just felt right. The, the music was playing and it just felt like, you know what? I could move out of the integrator and CEO box. Elliot could move into that box and that I felt comfortable the business would continue to run 
And when we announced it to the employees, I can remember uh, I, I had one meeting in the spring of two, in the January of 2018, where I told them, hey, there's a new investor in the business. I was going to say, because if it was business as usual, it probably was, like you said, anticlimactic yeah. to the employees. I mean, it was a shock because I, I hadn't really talked about exiting the business before. So it's probably mm-hmm. an advice that I'd give to other entrepreneurs that if they think there's, you know, when they think there's a point or they start talking about exiting the business, that there's some way they could probably have that conversation with the employees to separate the first mention of me not running or not me not owning the business with the day that I tell them I'm not owning the business. We probably could have separated that by years to just even talk about the concept of someday there will be a day when I'm not mm-hmm, owning the mm-hmm. business and maybe someday there'll be a day when I'm not running the business or both one or the other or both. And let's mm-hmm. just get that out there. So I never got that out there. So January 2018, I told them there was this new investor and the folks from Evergreen came in and, and did a, a great job of smoothing some concerns that were just mm-hmm. there by nature of nature, the, yeah. the announcement. Yeah. Uh, and then I surprised everyone the next year where I said, you know what? I'm feeling really good about how things are going. I think it's time <laughs> for me to step away. And I was preparing for a speech with the staff and I was focusing on nothing's going to change. Like, don't worry, Elliot's going to do everything I would. Nothing's going to change. And I worked on it for a couple of weeks and the weekend, like the meeting was on like a Tuesday. And like that Sunday, I changed gears and I said, that is just stupid, Lloyd. If I, I started doing a little look back in the company and I looked at everything that had changed over the years. I mean, from mm-hmm. I started doing custom programming and we switched to networking and we did networking by the hour. And then we switched to blocks of monthly on-site time. And then we switched to fixed monthly flat fee, all you can eat and we switched from software that we wrote ourselves to investing in the commercial ConnectWise software. And we moved offices three times. And like every time I went and told the employees we were doing something like this, they looked at me like, you're nuts. This is wrong. Or, and <laughs> it, in the end, if I told them, hey, we're taking some of those things away, they would yell at me, what do you mean? That's how we run the company. So like they came to, to know them. So. Yeah. What I my yeah my ending speech, if you will, uh, in that that meeting where I introduced that I was going to step away and that Elliot was going to become the new CEO was that it was going to be business as usual, which was a combination of doing things the way we always have, with a healthy dose of change and innovation, and that when Elliot comes to you or the leadership team comes to you and says we're changing something. Just remember all the things I changed over the last 30 years. And that's just normal too. And they'll be changing things, but just because it's right to change, not because they're wrong in changing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I felt good about leaving, you know, with that, with that theme. And it was quite funny. We built the PowerPoint with two pages of the first 15 years of the business, the second 15 years of the business, and there'll be the next 15 years of the business. Uh, I'm now kind of in the founder's box where I just get to stop by and visit every once in a while, say hi to people. You yeah, still, like, still have equity in the, in the um, entity? I, I rolled some equity into Evergreen at the parent company. Yep. So that's kind of spread okay. between all of the six operating companies that they know. Okay. Uh, but I certainly have a special relationship with Wolf Consulting as a special place yeah. in my heart. And really all except for myself and and Peter, who was a 17-year uh, veteran account manager, we've both retired now. 
Otherwise, we're the only two people who were with the company at the time of the sale who aren't with the company now. And so I stop by every once in a while to say hi to people in the office. They still are kind enough to invite me to the summer picnic and the, <laughs> a winter holiday party. And I get to see people and I kind of play the role of the founder now. So what, as we're wrapping up here, what gave you the passion to be able to know that that was the right thing? So you can kind of tell everybody what you're doing now, what's the best way to get in touch with you? And then what, you know, how is it fulfilled? How are you getting fulfilled today with what you're doing? Yeah. Uh, Today, like over the last year, I, I kind of went on another journey to figure out what's the, the next phase for, for Lloyd or the next chapter for Lloyd. I, took, I started to learn how to play golf a f- just a few years ago. So I, I played a lot of golf last summer. Yeah, um, I, I had, there's a lot of opportunity to improve in my golf game. Um, <laughs> I, I'm doing some consulting work with Evergreen, helping them. And I've got a, a small set of clients that I just do some consulting work for, both inside and outside the IT industry. For the peer groups, I really loved the peer groups. And I found a way to stay involved. I've, I've transitioned from being a member to being a facilitator. Oh, awesome. Uh, so once a quarter, I spend a week in the city that we're meeting. Um, although next month when we have our meeting, it's all virtual, virtual. <laughs> because of COVID. Uh, but normally I, I spend, I facilitate two groups, one the first half of the week, Monday, Tuesday, and another group the second half of the week, Thursday, Friday, uh, where I kind of still get to be around the folks that I love from the yeah. industry. And I, I get to help some other folks with running their businesses by leading them in discussions over two days. And then really, those were both enjoyable work, uh, but they, they weren't quite hitting the bullseye for me. So I, I spent some time reflecting on it. And when I think back, I, I really love what EOS did for my own business and the positive impact that it had on me personally, my team, and the entire company. So I decided uh, to become a professional EOS implementer. And earlier this year, I completed my training. And so now I get to work with businesses uh, to help them implement EOS in their business and uh, kind of experience the same benefits from the EOS model and the EOS tools that I did. It kind of fills my need to be involved in businesses and, and help business owners and entrepreneurs and leadership teams get what they want from their business without personally have to Take starting and running and growing <laughs> my own business. Yeah. So I, I live through them and EOS is a proven set of tools. So I'm, I'm so comfortable with it and that it worked for me and then it's worked for thousands of other businesses uh, that I can feel confident and just kind of play the role of a teacher, a facilitator, and a coach in helping them implement EOS in their businesses. And, and that really is... Um, where I've landed and it's really something I'm passionate about. And it's, it's uh, what keeps me going right now. I think you just hit on quite a few crucial things as being passionate and having the right combination and mix of things, which I think you did. And I think it's also just as a note for the listeners, as you know, I, I think there's a lot of people like you, Lloyd, where like they want to stay involved in their industry and their friends, but if they sell to the wrong person, they might sign a non-compete and have the ability to not talk to any of those people. Right. So, I mean, like really mapping out kind of the lifestyle that you just mentioned, the income, but also the, the, the makeup of that lifestyle is going to be, you know, crucial as picking that buyer. So if our, if our listeners want to get in touch with you, want to learn more, have a conversation, what's the best way? They can, I think on your, your uh, profile page there on your, on your page, you'll have a link for uh, my LinkedIn profile. So you can find me Lloyd Wolf, L-L-O-Y-D-W-O-L-F on LinkedIn. Uh, the website for my current business, it's uh, my business is Achieve Business Services. 
And the website is achieve-services.com. So someone could go to that website and there's a contact Lloyd page. If they need to reach out to me, they can either do it on the website or just send me a private message from LinkedIn. Lloyd, it's been a blast having you on the show. Appreciate you sharing the story. My pleasure. It It was great being with you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lloyd. Big takeaway is I believe you can get what you want from your business on all fronts. It's going to take hard work. I promise you it's worth it though. Go on to arcona.io slash assessment or text 66866 to take the two minute 20 question assessment we've created to help you shift your mindset and focus on value creating activities that are going to get what you want with the business. So all the things that Lloyd talks about, we've got questions on all those and it's literally going to take you like two minutes and it's just a scale of one through five on how well you're working on certain things from focusing on EBITDA creation, focusing on the right value creating strategies, really great assessment to help you shift in your mindset and kick yourself into gear. 66866, text the word intentional. Otherwise, go to arcona.io slash assessment. And with that being said, I will see you next week.